Welcome to the Governance Podcast here at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at the Department of Political Economy, King's College London. Uh, I'm Mark Pennington, the Head of the Department of Political Economy and Director of the Centre. We're very pleased to have with us today Professor Pete Betke from the Department of Economics at George Mason University, where he's the University Professor of Economics and Philosophy. Pete has published a new book with Palgrave in the Great Thinkers in Economics series on F.A. Hayek, Economics, Political Economy and Social Philosophy. Pete, it's great to have you with us uh, today. We're going to focus, if you don't mind, much of the discussion on your new book on Hayek. So let me begin the discussion by asking you why you decided to write this book. There have been a number of books on Hayek in recent years. So why another one and, uh, and why now? Oh, well, first, thank you very much for having me on, Mark. And um, on the issue of why I wrote the book, uh, the original impetus of this was that the editor of the Great Thinkers and Economics series contacted me and asked me if I would write a book on <laughs> Hayek. And, um, you know, of course, I said yes. And then I had the, uh, you know, the dilemma of then, as you said, you know, dealing with other works that are on Hayek, such as Bruce Caldwell's, which I think very, very highly of, um, but also other works that um, I don't always have the singularity of praise that I do for Caldwell's works, but have been very important books, books that have made Hayek's work accessible to broader audiences, uh, Hayek's uh, works that have made Hayek's work more um, uh, introductory for young students and whatnot. And so, you know, I'm writing this book. It's the, the the great thinkers in economics, and I decided to try to write the book in a way that emphasized not so much Hayek the man, and not so much boiling Hayek's ideas down to their essence, but trying to see some kind of continuity and uh, and also the discontinuities in Hayekian uh, development of Hayekian ideas and their continuing relevance for us today for practitioners of the social sciences and the humanities so that uh, <clears throat> one way to think about uh, in my head the way I've thought about this is that uh, when I started studying um, economics and the intellectual history of economics I was introduced to two separate articles one about intellectual history and one about economic history and they came out roughly in the 1960s to 1980 period. Um, one of them is George Stigler's essay called Does Economics Have a Useful Past? And Stigler argued in the negative because his argument was is that uh, whatever was good in the ancient thinkers is already embodied in the moderns. And I disagree with that thesis tremendously. I'm very influenced by another one of my teachers, uh, Kenneth Boulding, who wrote a piece called After Samuelson, Who Needs Smith? And his argument is we all do because Smith is still speaking to us today. It's this idea of the extended present that he has. And so he offers, where Stigler offers a Whig theory of history of ideas, uh, you know, Bolding offered a contrawig. And so in the same way, I wanted to try to see what in Hayek's writings um, do we still have evolutionary potential to go with. And the other thing that influenced me about the history of ideas and economic history was that I was very enamored and have been enamored since I was a student in the Quentin Skinner kind of idea of putting ideas in context. And so I do believe that intellectual history, proper intellectual history, should be about contextualization and all these things like that. 
But how do I know how to adjudicate between the different theories that are being contextualized? And that Deirdre McCloskey wrote an essay which came out while I was in graduate school called Does uh, the Past Have a Useful Economics? And her argument was in the positive that the past does have a useful economics and that you can actually have various different economic theories can be used to adjudicate different historical interpretations. And so what I kind of thought I was going to try to do in this book was live at the borderland where I'm answering both of those questions. And in the process, I'm contextualizing, but not limited to an intellectual biography of Hayek, but seeing how the various historical background that Hayek is engaged in. So not only is he engaged in the debate with Keynes and engaged in the debate with market socialism, but he's living through the Great Depression and he's living through the the establishment of communist countries and their uh, breakdown and the Cold War and all of that stuff. And that's all this background information that's in his head when he's writing everything like that and that that explains why he takes the various different bites of the apple that he does yeah that's an interesting feature of the book is that you basically divide Hayek's work into four phases we have phase one which is economics as a coordination problem which is focusing on his work on the role of relative prices and monetary uh, disturbances Um, we've got phase two which is what you call the abuse of reason project, which is in his engagement with the market socialists. We've got phase three, which you refer to as the liberal principles of justice between about 1960 and 1980. And then we have a final phase, phase four, where he's addressing these concerns of cultural evolution. Now, the book focuses really on the first three of those um, phases. I wonder whether you could say a little bit about why you decided to break the book down into addressing these three phases in Hayek's intellectual career as you see it? Yeah, so uh, first off, because let me start at the end <laughs> and begin at the end. Um, and, and then that might explain where there's also some weaknesses, I think, in the book that I would say in, in retrospect uh, were weaknesses, but you can only deal with so much. Um, so I'm trying to address an audience of modern economists and political economists mainly uh, graduate students and early faculty, um, who I'm trying to persuade that this Hayekian project, if we want to call it that, has legs that they can then run with and develop. And so the way that I thought that the, the best avenue to get into that with them is, uh, would be is through institutional economics, what I call in one of the chapters a genuine institutional economics. And I want to try to explain the arc of Hayek's career of how it is he gets to this genuine institutional economics. And so to me, that's going to be in these first three phases, which is the first phase is economics as a coordination problem. You'll see that these overlap in his, in his time period. So I would date that between 1920 and 1940. Mm-hmm. And then to see his other work as the Abuse of Reason Project, which I would uh, basically uh, it starts in the late 1930s, and I would put an endpoint in 1960, and then his reconstruction of liberalism project being 1960 or 50, basically, because he starts writing the Constitution of Liberty in 1950 and carrying that out to uh, you know the 1980s, and then from 1980 onward, you have him developing this philosophical anthropology of man, which in my head I I think there's two strands of the late Hayek. Uh, one of them is that he's wrestling with this issue that our moral intuitions 
are born of our evolutionary past, but our moral demands of the great society um, are born of modernity, and that there's a clash of these tensions between what our moral intuitions are and what the moral demands are for a cosmopolitan society. Another way to think about it is our moral intuitions are all in-group, but the moral demands of cosmopolitanism will have to be all out-group morality, and that there's this tension in it. And I don't do enough with that, but I hope I leave enough what, what you would say in computer gaming, like Easter eggs, for people to like run with that. The other issue that I really miss, which is this later Hayek, is the complexity theorist Hayek. And uh, there's no doubt that that becomes a major theme in Hayek, that he's dealing with the complexity thing. And the reason that I don't have that is because in the institutional economics idea, I'm still working with the kind of basic um, intellectual framework that Nozick lays out in the first part of Anarchy, State, and Utopia over invisible hand explanations, where you have an animating agent, methodological individualism, rational choice, whatever you want to call it, then institutional variation or institutional analysis, and then equilibrating, uh, you know, byproducts of that from the filter of those institutions. Mm. So the basic formula is, you know, fixed preferences, vary institutions, explain the variation in outcomes. And that's institutional economics, and that's what I was concerned with. And in that, the key issue in those first things is the economic coordination problem and the abuse of reason project is that the human sciences are different from the natural sciences, and that what kills that institutional product uh, project is the uh, alliance between statism and scientism, and that takes our direction away. Later, Hayek uh, moved from methodological dualism, the human sciences versus the natural sciences, to the sciences of simple phenomena and the science of complex phenomena. And in that world, then, there's a kind of a loss of emphasis on the animating agent, right? Because in some sense, that's not the key issue. And I think that's, there's very strong reasons to go in that direction. I don't develop the argument in the paper on that. If I would have done that in the book, I would have had to do a lot more with a sensory order. And then I would have had a lot to do more with his stuff on general systems theory and whatnot. And so to me, you know, the Ur text of the book is uh, the 1937 paper, right, economics and knowledge, as opposed to, let's say, in older writings like John Gray's, right, it's the sensory order that sets him off, or, uh, you know, in more recent writings, you know, some of his uh, people might argue about his methodological turn or whatever. But there's no doubt that that's there, and there's no doubt that the moral intuitions, moral demand conflict is there. But I just didn't want to uh, that's not what I wanted to do with the book. Since I'm talking about Hayekianism and not Hayek, the, I thought I had some license. And so I focused on what did we learn about the nature of the monetary system and the price system? That's the first period. What did we learn about how we study that? And I think, sorry for being long-winded here, but I think the reason why the Abuse of Reason Project is so important is because Hayek was caught off guard by the critics of both his business cycle theory and of market socialism or the advocates of market socialism. And the reason is I think Hayek's theories, both of the business cycle and of the price system are in fact appropriately understood neoclassical theories from 1900 to 1930. So he was clearly in the, the mainstream in some sense. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden, and he thought, if you read like the trend of economic thinking, he thought that the only way that someone could try to outmaneuver those positions would be to, um, uh, let me make sure, uh, would be to uh, argue that they rejected economic theory, 
right? So if you read the trend of economic theory, it's this kind of trend of economic thinking. It's this kind of interesting thing because it's not anticipating that people are going to use economic theory to criticize the kind of positions that mm-hmm. Hayek has. They're going to reject economic theory, and then they can criticize the kind of positions that Hayek has. And so he's kind of like, okay, so what happened? <laughs> and then he's asking like, okay, so think about it. He's like, oh, they must be all products of St. Simone, right? You know, it's kind of a weird move that he makes, but it's because they are draining economics of institutions precisely at the time when we needed to emphasize institutions to understand why it is that the credit transmission mechanism can get screwed up or why it is that we can understand that the role of private property and sanctity of contract matters for the way we understand how markets operate. And so he wants to recapture institutions. And so in the 1940s, during this Abuse of Reason project, you have a twin move, which is an epistemological argument and an institutional argument. The road to serfdom is as much about the knowledge problem as it is about the institutional framework that's necessary in order to make free society operate and the loss of that leading to the loss of the free society. And so you have these two arguments going, and that's what I I chose to work with. I mean, what you say is the common core, I think, through those three phases is the idea of Hayek developing this, what you call epistemic institutionalism. Yeah. And earlier on, perhaps that was implicit in the writings because there were certain things he took for granted. And it seems like the abuse of reason project is the phase where he feels to make the basis of those um, insights on the limits of human knowledge more explicit and how they might reflect back onto these debates he was having with the market socialists and prior to that, uh, the Keynesians. And then we see that coming forward in a different guise to the limits of democracy, thinking about the road to serfdom, but also um, in the final phase three, the 60 to 82 period that you look at, thinking about these liberal principles of justice and what epistemic institutionalism applies for those. Could you give a brief summary to those perhaps who are uninitiated? What do you mean by the term epistemic institutionalism? and Why is it so important to to what you call the Hayekian project? So in the post-1950 period, economics is um, a a sub-movement within mainstream economics is the rediscovery of institutions. You have Armin Alchin resurrecting property rights economics. Why do we need Armin Alchin to resurrect property rights economics? We already had, you know, Aristotle's critique of Plato goes all the way back to antiquity. And yet at the same time, we also used to have, you know, uh, certainly Adam Smith talked about how, or David Hume talked about the value of property, right? I mean, Hume in the treatise of human nature says that, you know, the foundation of of society is property, contract, and consent, right? Mm-hmm. So why do we need to rediscover that? Uh, Gordon Tullock rediscovers interest group politics. Uh, the greatest satire in the history of, of political economy is Bastiat's the candlestick makers petitioning the sun for the, uh, petitioning government for unfair competition from the sun. So it's not like, you know, Adam Smith talked about the sophistry of the businessman. So it's not like we didn't know this, but we had to rediscover it. Um, law, Ronald Coase, you know, tells us about the importance of law. All these things happened in the 1950 period. And, 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 uh, and so... What's common about that? The way that they tried to talk about it was the effect of alternative institutions on the incentives that individuals face in making their decisions. And that's 100% accurate, and we should talk about that. What Hayek's unique 
position was was slightly different. His argument was in order for us to act on those incentives, we actually have to acquire knowledge about what would be the best responses to that. And the environment that we find ourselves in is going to be uh, is going to de- is going to determine what kind of knowledge we can generate to get this. Mm-hmm. And so, what I'm trying to talk about is that aspect of it, which is how do alternative institutional environments shape the flow and quality of information that we utilize that leads to the discovery and utilization of dispersed knowledge in the economy or in the society as a whole. And so, you know, you this feeds right into your own work because, you know, there's a kind of way you think about robustness in political economy, which is that you can think about institutions that allow us to cope with our ignorance. Um, that's intele- that's institutional robustness. So imagine that our actors are, in fact, ignorant. Uh, they, they have to perceive the dark forces of time and ignorance and all that. Institutions arise to help us get through that. Those would be robust institutions. And then there's also the way you develop in your book, intellectual robustness, which is how would an argument develop to respond to people who challenge the market by saying that it suffers from imperfect knowledge, that it suffers from, you know, monopoly and a macro instability or income inequality. And so you have an intellectual robustness and you have an institutional robustness and trying to see those two things as linked, that the argument for the institutional robustness empowers us to engage in an intellectually robust argument against our critics, that is kind of what I think is the Hayekian project and that Hayekian term. I mean, something that puzzles me is the fact that, you know, ever since I've been um, reading Hayek over a number of years, the idea of of ignorance has always been, struck me as absolutely central to his project. The idea that agents are not fully rational. Right that they stumble around in the world. They are purposeful in some sense, right. but they've got very limited information processing powers. And what we have to do is think about how institutions enable them to cope and to learn yeah. in these very non-ideal circumstances. And he's basically making the argument that uh, a private property order with predominantly, though not exclusively, market institutions enables that learning to take place better than some of the available sure. alternatives. It's, it's a, if I could just say that, it's very much like Giger Inzer's ecological rationality yes. or, or Vernon Smith's idea in this. And so there's a, there's a kind of a evolutionary potential of that yeah. idea for research. Because if you think about the behaviorist rational choice debate, it misses this aspect of yeah. it. And so this is an alternative way to talk about those. Yeah. Okay, so given that that is so central to the project, why is it you think there are so many misconceptions about what Hayek actually said? So you will repeatedly hear people say that Hayek's case for the market assumes that agents are fully rational, uh, that they are fully informed, or if they're not fully informed, that the price system acts as a surrogate for perfect information. So those are the kind of criticisms you get in sort of commentators, I guess, of of economics, but also from technical professionals such as people like Joe Stiglitz. So why is it, you think, that people haven't grasped that Hayek is really about ignorance, uh, not about uh, a, a perfectly rational, well-informed yeah. agent? So it's a great question. And, uh, you know, um, I entertain some hypotheses, you know, um, uh, of this, and I try to address some of those things. But, um, you know, 
I, I want to say this in the in a way that's that's not ham fisted or whatever, but people want to believe what it is that they want to believe. And if they know that they can defeat a certain argument and they think that's the only argument they've ever been exposed to about why it is anyone would want to believe in markets, then they want to see that argument get translated into it. So they don't want to see Hayek as an alternative to the textbook model because they know they can beat the textbook model. And so then somehow Hayek has to be a contributor to the textbook model. Well, I find this really fascinating. So I so three economists just recently are starting this alternative movement. I know in the UK you have the core movement. Yep. Um, now they there's some three serious economists that I have huge amount of respect for um, in in the United States. Um, Shuresh Nadu, uh, uh, Danny Roderick, um, and uh, I'm forgetting the third person. I apologize, um, but uh, they uh, just published this manifesto, and they start out and they make an argument that. Um, uh, basically that um, oh it's uh, Gabriel Zuckman at, at Berkeley and uh, so you have a you have a Columbia a Columbia economist a Harvard economist and a Berkeley economist and then they proceed to try to tell you that the world of economics is dominated by market fundamentalism and I'm kind of like hmm, like I'm not even sure there's a market fundamentalist on the staff at any of those schools right so you're kind of like what the heck are they talking about but you know, in their mind, we teach this Econ 101, which, by the way, is you also hear in your core project, yep. and that somehow the whole economics profession is dominated by this Econ 101. But the reality is, in 99% of Econ 1 courses, the first four weeks teach supply and demand, and then the next 10 weeks teach you externalities, monopoly, uh, you know, public goods, macroeconomic instability, income inequality, and then government as a corrective. To that and so, and you can look at any textbook from you know even the most market oriented textbook is going to introduce those ideas and very few of them are going to talk about cosian solutions or property rights rearrangement that it's not a market failure it's a legal failure because of property rights and so you know the vast majority of economics profession is market failure that that's what economics teaches and so it's always amazed me when people try to say oh the economics profession is fundamentally you know market fundamentalist because it's not. It's really interventionist. And and so Hayek, trying to translate Hayek into that market fundamentalist position is just not an accurate reading of what Hayek said. But it's better to put him in that box because if you try to deal with Hayek where he's talking about dynamics of adjustment, about how institutions will in fact shape and so therefore we have to pay attention to law, we have to pay attention to politics, we have to pay attention to all these things like that, the story becomes more complicated. Now, again, like I said, I don't want to sound, you know, uh, ham-fisted, so you have to entertain the hypothesis about what is it that Hayek might have said in his own writings that would clue people into thinking like that. And I think, you know, there are statements that Hayek makes, you know, I don't need to know, uh, you know, whether the supply or the demand of tin, all I need to know is whether the price moves. And so then the price becomes a surrogate, right, for me, uh, uh, for a perfect knowledge sort of uh, conclusion. But I think that there's people like yourself, myself, others who, you know, have taken Hayek, put him in this broader context of his intellectual tradition and the arguments that he was working with and the kind of people he was working with, we see that it's really hard to put him into this box, this this perfect competition box, and that instead he's working in something different. And his welfare economics is different and all kinds of things. And therefore, could we get 
that position to be out there so that you can adjudicate between that and then the standard arguments and not allow the arguments to just be, oh, they're incommensurable paradigms, but see a way in which you can adjudicate on that front. I mean, I've, I've, I've got a lot of sympathy with the view that you just put forward. Just to push back on one thing, though, about the the way economics is is taught um, or the way it's presented. So I, I would definitely agree with the idea that if you look at most of the textbooks, actually market failure is a dominant theme. I think that what some people in that movement are suggesting, and this is an argument that's also put forward by Knight and Johnson in their mm-hmm. priority of democracy uh, work, is the idea that the economist model, the 101 model, starts from the assumption of there being some kind of a market. And then you talk about there being market failures, Mm -hmm. which the government might correct. But the idea that the market is the primary mechanism of resource allocation is taken as given. Mm -hmm. And government action is seen simply as a corrective to that. What Knight and Johnson say is that you shouldn't start with any presumption in favor of anything whether it's a market or anything else, that um, what actually is an appropriate mechanism, whether it's a market or a non-market mechanism, is open to uncertainty. And that institutions should be more about actually negotiating that uncertainty. And the Econ 101 model doesn't really recognize mm-hmm. that problem. Would, do you think that's a fair characterization or, or, or not? Well, I think that, you know, so it's an interesting point, but... The big debate that that question might be for a different subject, which is called comparative economic systems, yeah. because market as the main uh, uh, um, allocator of resources wasn't always the case. But we basically have three methods that we can look at: tradition, uh, markets, and planning. And then the question I think that Knight and Johnson should ask themselves is uh, which one of those mechanisms is most consistent with democratic values and democratic practice. I do think that, um, so you mentioned before about the limits of democracy. I think the, the first thing to recognize about Hayek, um, he's less so than Buchanan, but still is committed like Knight and like Buchanan to democracy. It's, a lot of people get un, misunderstand this. What he's not committed to or is the, he, he's, he wants to highlight the difficulties of unlimited democracy. But part of his argument in The Road to Serfdom is that uh, planning requires deviations from democracy. And so it's a non-democratic move. You can't have democratic socialism because it's somewhat of an oxymoron, because you're going to have to violate democratic values. Part of that is the value plurality that democracy works with. Um, which in the technical terms would mean that we would have cyclical majorities rather than one stable social welfare function. But planning requires that I have one stable social welfare function that I can then impose on the rest of society, which is non-democratic. And this is just a version of Arrow's theorem that he's talking about. And that's what, in The Road to Serfdom, it's when he has the discussions about the limits to agreement. His argument is that in a democratic pluralistic society, we are not going to be able to agree on ends, because all of us are going to have various different ends. So the only thing we can agree on is the means by which we interact with each other rather than the ends that we each should pursue. And so that democracy should be limited to those questions of the institutional structure 
of that. Now, the other question, which is why... What if, what if we disagree on means as well, though? Well, that's through... I mean, how, demo, do we, how do we negotiate those disagreements? But this is where I think Buchanan is more subtle than, than Hayek because he goes into more depth on that, which is in a wonderful essay called Positive Economics, Welfare Economics, and Political Economy. Mm-hmm. What he argues is that all we can ever do, economists cannot take an Archimedean point. They're not allowed to because we're not privileged over anyone else. And instead, all we can do is offer our hypotheses, our our rule suggestion changes as hypotheses within the democratic process of collective action. But what he wants to do to empower that is to have a real compensation scheme, like actual real compensation, so that people would be indifferent between their interests and then the outcome, right? Because we'd make them whole if they lost their per- particular purpose. And he does this in various different exercises. So in the in the positive economics, welfare economics, he does it through a compensation scheme. In the calculus of consent, he does it through the veil of ignorance. And then in the politics by principle, not interest, he does it through the generality norm. So Buchanan himself takes various different slices, you know, bites of the apple for us to think about this. But the reason why I'm talking about Buchanan, though, about a book on Hayek, is I see them both in working in the Constitutional Political Economy Project, and that in the Hayekian development of ideas, I think Buchanan is, is working in that. And so this is part of the what it means to have a genuine institutional economics, which is what I get to in the last part of the mm-hmm. book. So the way that you set it up before is the way I have the book, the book's divided into 11 chapters. And I have a preface, which is really too long for a normal preference and but it lays out this whole structure of what you're talking about and then i have a chapter which is on uh, misconceptions of hayek which is what you're asking about here and that goes through various different puzzles 10 of them i argue are misconceptions that i hope will clarify throughout the book and then i have a, a bio, one biographical uh you know chapter on hayek an overview and then after that it's the Price system, it, you know, the money, the monetary system, uh, you know, to anatomy of a cycle, the price system, the debate over market socialism, and then the development of a genuine institutional economics, and then the reconstruction of liberal projects. So you have the the genuine institu- uh, institutional economics is the beginning. Once he's done with that, which is at the end of this first two periods. So if we if we buy the lessons of, of the counter-revolution of science and we buy the lessons of individualism and economic order, imagine that we accepted them and that became the way we do economics now. Now, how would you reconstruct liberalism beyond that? And that's this last part of it. And so that's the way the book sort of evolves in telling that story. But when we're in that reconstruction of the liberal project, I'm not just analyzing Hayek's works. I'm trying to talk about a variety of thinkers that are all trying to do the same thing at that time. So that includes Milton Friedman, but also Jim Buchanan, especially Jim Buchanan. Um, Some critics of the book have said that I talk about too many people other than Hayek at the end, which might might be true, but Hayek is the constant theme that runs throughout it. Yeah. I was going to ask you about um, another person um, as well as Hayek, so maybe that's going to compound the problem. I was going to ask you a little bit about um, how Eleanor Ostrom might fit into some of this debate. So one of the characterizations you get of Hayek goes something like this. Um, So he made very important arguments based on the limits to human knowledge that a broadly competitive economic system, a broadly market system, helps people to overcome 
those limitations more effectively than some kind of top-down or centrally planned economy. So there are many people now across the political spectrum um, who would accept at least part of that argument, that there isn't a very strong argument for central economic planning. But they would then say, we've learned from, for example, people like Eleanor Ostrom, um, that there are there's more to economic allocation than markets and states. Um, the Hayekian paradigm is very much about the coordinative role, the epistemic role of market institutions and why they might be superior to some kind of top-down state planning. But what about the idea that there are other kind of institutions that, to use Austin's phrase, are beyond markets and states that might also have some of these properties? And aren't these fundamental to many of the policy debates that, that are relevant now, where we're thinking about issues of environmental governance, financial governance, the the formulation of rules which actually structure the way markets actually operate. Does Hayek himself have anything to say to those kind of issues? Um, and do you address them at all in the, in, in the book? Well, I try to, because if he's building to a genuine institutional economics, he's going to have to develop a, a set of tools for us to think about um, institutions and institutional change and the bedrock of those. And so, as you know, and, and you yourself have, have commented on Lynn's work, uh, you know, both Lynn and Vincent have a, um, both a strong connection to Hayek and then some reservations about Hayek, like, you know, anyone who's a serious critical scholar. But they, they don't deny certain aspects of what Hayek is, is up to and what they can learn from him. Uh, Hayek, uh, you know, Lynn's last public address was actually the Hayek lecture uh, mm -hmm. that you wrote a commentary for. Um, and she did that when she was very ill and she was very committed to making sure that she made that lecture. So I think that says something about that. Um, so one of the questions or the caricatures um, of Hayek is that, um, uh, for example, that he was an atomist. Right. Uh, that's not true. Right. He's not an atomist. As you mentioned before, his notion of man is not an isolated homo economicus. It's not a uh, econ, as the behaviorally people would call it. In fact, if anything, he views his uh, nature of man is that we're kind of like dullards and, uh, you know, sloths until we, you know, are prodded by certain institutions um, and that we need those institutions. But he is a in this institutional phase, he is a methodological individualist. And as Lynn has argued that having that kind of position, this argument in the governing the commons, but, you know, having that position imposes an intellectual discipline because what you can't do is it forces you to have behavioral symmetry. You can't just assume some people are stupid and other people are smart and let's put the smart people in charge and then they'll be able to do it. So what Eleanor was trying to get at is what are the foundations of democratic self-governance? And this is Tocquevillianism. This is a big part of their project is opening up to Tocqueville. Well, Tocqueville was also a hero to Hayek as well in this regard. So there's some overlap here. And it is not the case that Hayek did not pay attention to collective action problems. Uh, just a little uh, aside, Hayek is responsible for translating into German uh, Mansur Olson's logic of collective action. It was in his group at uh, Freiburg that he had the students all do the translations and then had Olson like read them as, a, as an idea. But this is, this is not a new idea to him. Go all the way back to 1933. Uh, this is a quote from the trend of economic thinking where he's 
trying to talk about where classical economists had gone wrong. And one of his arguments in there is that classical economists had gone wrong because they failed to explain, and then this is the direct quote, within which uh, the areas within which collective action is not only unobjectionable, but actually a useful means for obtaining the desired end. To remedy this deficiency, that is for modern economists to study collective action, to remedy this deficiency must be one of the main tasks of us in the future. So I see Hayek political economy coming out of this is actually embracing how do we think about collective action. And when you think about that, you're going to think about issues of scale and scope of government, um, which is going to be, you know, what, remember what the old line was, is that the role of government is to help people do those things which they can't do for themselves or can't do well for themselves but not for the role of government to do everything for people. And so this is the Tocquevillian civil society is one of the ways you do it. So you think about civil society, churches, nonprofits, other kind of collective action, voluntary agreements, and the way that we have policing within that policing, not being the technical police, but policing of your so cheaters, right? Within that, um, how that evolves to take on. Um, and those are non-market mechanisms. And I think we can learn a lot, both in the positive sense and the negative sense, because here's one of the problems. What are some of the problems that face nonprofit entities? Well, they're going to face incentive problems, and they're going to face knowledge problems. So what institutions have they evolved that serve as proxies? So I think that part of the language, which might get Hayek in trouble, but I actually think is pretty prescient, is that um, if I can establish how markets self-regulate, and that requires the institution of property, prices, and profit laws, when I move outside the realm of commercial society, what serves as my proxy for what property would do, for what prices would do, and what for profit and loss would do? And that then opens up my research attention, antennas, to then looking for what those proxies are. So if I go into politics, what's the functional equivalent of property prices and profit and loss. If I go into the church, what's the you know equivalent of that? Now, that's different from neoliberalism because what neoliberalism says is I have to find property prices and profit and loss in those institutions. So I want to make efficient government. And so I do this. I'm not saying that. I'm saying what is the coordinating mechanism? You know, how do they actually end up by doing this? Because someone's going to have to decide. Let's say we take any kind of collective action and we're in government decisions. Right? We're still going to have to decide who does what, at what level are they going to do it, and how are we going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So to invoke Buchanan again, one of Buchanan's great insights, So just to show that how Buchanan is tied up into all this stuff in a deep level. Remember, his first paper is called A Pure Theory of Government Expenditures, and his criticism is against the FISC. The FISC is a unified... Uh, he hasn't done his critique of Arrow's theorem yet, but what he says, the FISC is basically a unified, centralized, benevolent fiscal planner. And they're going to tell us what the optimal tax, and he says, that's not what goes on in the world. Well, that's like the equivalent in public finance of the central planner. And his argument is that they don't know what they're doing. And he draw, he, the citation evidence is to Hayek and Mises, mm-hmm. you know, in all these early papers of his. So I think there's a connection that we need to always remember in those ideas. But what Buchanan says is any theory of public finance must must by necessity postulate a political theory because it has to answer the question, what is the scale and scope of government? Because that's going to determine what I need to pay money for to finance it. 
I think political theory has the flip side, which is that any theory of political of, of philosophy implicitly has a public finance theory because someone's going to have to pay for the goods and we're going to have to determine it. And so in the Ostrom's work, especially Vincent, but this is also true in Eleanor, they have, because remember, Eleanor did all the work on local public goods. So besides the collective action problems having to do with the commons and anything like that, she also studied, starting with water supply, she also studied police services, delivery of road services, all these municipalities. And the question in all of that is, first, one, how do I decide on the principle of subsidiarity related to the size of the externality has to be tied to the decision unit? So they always, Vincent especially tried to link it back to the Federalist Papers and the Constitution. So this would be the position in the Federalist Papers where they say that the, the interests of the man must align with the constitutional rights of the place. And the idea of that is that we don't need the federal government to collect our garbage. We could do that at the localist level. But at the same time, we don't expect the localist level to provide for our national defense against nuclear annihilation or something. So the size of the externality should affect the decision unit that's responsible for dealing with that externality. And then the second thing is the benefit principle, which is that the tax system should mimic what the price system would do if a price system could be in that market. And it's not. By definition, we can't have it. So now how are we going to get that benefit principle? Otherwise, we are stuck with political externalities. That is the ability of some to impose costs on others, even though those others don't benefit from that. Mm -hmm. And so that that concern very much resonated with the Ostroms. And they were constantly concerned about that, which is why they kept on pushing for local and local levels, because they wanted to eliminate the political externalities. But they're not at the same time going to go to what they said, we're, we're not Lilliputans and we're not Gargantuas, right? But they wanted to go from Gargantua down uh, because at the lower level, you can always contract up. But if you're at the highest level, you can't contract down. And so by giving – you had more scope when you were down here to try to answer those questions. And again, Eleanor and Vincent, if you read their works, they talk a lot about how is it that the citizen – because they want to move from seeing like a state to seeing like a citizen, they're going to change the criteria from – ideal technological efficiency to citizen response, responsiveness and responsiveness to citizens' demands, right? And the engagement in self-governing democratic societies. And so by seeing like a citizen, what they're trying to do is tap into all that knowledge. This is what the polycentric thing is about, of those local citizens in their local, you know, situations. Well, can we pursue that a little bit? Because the way I tend to think about this is uh, the analogy is um, the Hayekian critique of the central planner mm -hmm. is based on the notion that the planner can't have access to the information which need to feed into prices. Yeah. So if you have a centrally determined price, it will not reflect what he calls the knowledge of the time. circumstance of time and place. place. Yeah. So you can have attempts to set prices centrally, but they won't reflect the circumstances right. on the ground. The Ostrom argument, which is analogous to that, is the notion that a central rule maker can't frame rules that would, to yeah. overcome collective action problems from right. the center, given that the circumstances of time and place which affect those collective action problems on the ground are radically dispersed across many different sorts of agents. Yeah. So you can no more have um, a central rule uh, creator than you can have a central price giver. 
So you need to have something like a discovery mechanism. And polycentricity, the idea of there being different levels of decision-making which can merge, they can overlap, they can compete, they can cooperate on different dimensions, is a kind of analogue to market competition when we're talking about goods that are not necessarily marketable goods. They're goods which have got collective goods or public goods uh, sort of attributes. So polycentricity is a kind of market analogue to deal with the knowledge problem when you apply it to public goods. Would that be a reasonable I account? think so, and, and they're very clear about their different definition of goods, right? Yeah. So they spent a lot of time because of the way that to answering on, you know, what's going to be produced, who's going to pr- produce it, for whom is it going to be produced, and how are we going to pay for it um, in, the, in this collective action sphere, which could be toll goods, could be club goods, could be common pool resources, right? Besides just a pure private good. Yeah. So they, they have various different ways that you can try to it's a big part of their scheme. And what's fascinating to me um, is the commonality between Lynn and, and, uh, and, and Hayek in recognizing uh, this. this is, I hope this is a kind of a subtle point, but I hope it like makes sense as soon as I say it. So a lot of economics, especially modern economics, has certain assumptions they make about the agents in the economy. So it's not necessarily the case that they argue that agents have uh, perfect knowledge. It's that agents have the same amount of knowledge. No agent in the economy doesn't know what the economic theorist knows. So whatever the economic theorist knows, the agent in the economy knows. And so that means that that agent can then do various things that, like exactly what the theorist would do. If you think about what Hayek and Ostrom are arguing is that the actors in our models are more clever than we as theorists are. And we have to give them scope for that. And a great line of this is in um, co- Governing the Commons mm-hmm. in the very beginning of the book where she finally gets to the point of why she doesn't buy the prisoner's dilemma, right? And she has a great line. She says, here's the problem with the prisoner's dilemma. It's not that it's logically wrong, right? It's that the prisoners are prisoners. And as a result, they're not architects of their own rules. And so precisely, they have to take the rules as given. They can't be public entrepreneurs. And just like in the neoclassical models, you don't have scope for entrepreneurship in the private sector. In her model, the standard way in which we think about collective action, we don't have scope for public entrepreneurs. And her whole thing is, can we find ways that people, the clever people in the world, can I get access to how it is that they come up with their own kind of oftentimes very bizarre collective arrangements and then try to step out of them and look and see what the general principles are that I'm learning. And so in the governing of commons, you know, she gives us examples from across the globe that have lasted between 10 years and 1,000 years, and they're in forestry, they're in fisheries, they're in water, uh, you know, water resource use, um, and she's going to explain all of this to us, and she's going to somehow drive these principles out of each of their examples to show what are the things that lead to the long and enduring practices, what are the things that lead to the fragility of practices, and how could people take fragile practices and maybe make them more robust. And she tries to give us that because she doesn't want to be accused of sampling on the dependent variable. So she's going to try to give us this comparative cases. And what she gets out of those general principles is you kind of think that she's making an argument about the difference between form and function. 
So the form takes a radical difference of a diversity, but the function has this something that I can universally understand. So they have to have something that limits access. They have to have something that assigns, you know, responsibility, and they have to have do something that introduces penalties when you mm -hmm. cheat. And that's true in all of these organizations. And when those functions are in fact threatened, because that's when the fragility kicks in and, the, and they don't solve the problem. But the way that I go about achieving those things can be as varied as human history is varied, which to me is just this amazing research program because she's opening up our world uh, and all of its fantastic institutional diversity to yet a common core understanding of what we're trying to do to be able to get self-governance. And uh, so to me, that project is very Hayekian in spirit, if not Hayekian in name. If you, if you, if that makes sense, it's also very much as I, I would read it, very much about learning as well. So, in the same way yes. that yeah. um, you know, Hayek's competition between firms is a kind of discovery procedure where firms can copy the successful models, avoid the failing ones. Likewise, in a polycentric order, where we've got multiple decision centers, which are public entrepreneurs, if you like, trying to cope with collective action problems in different ways. Uh, the different localities can observe what other localities are doing to try to learn themselves how to adapt to their own particular conditions. Yeah, and so, your point about the, the external observers is very highlighted in her story of the fisheries in Nova Scotia because what happens is the Canadian government comes in and tries to be the yeah. centralized rule maker. Yeah. And then what happens is they end up by destroying all of the local way in which they had organized things for years. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is a... Um, you know, a fascinating kind of example uh, of idea. But again, you know, she's looking at other examples where even other things where the collective action, you know, public entrepreneurship fades away because the community responsibility system breaks down, you know. And so to me, the various forms of institutional diversity that she identifies, but yet the commonality of what it takes to be able to get self-governance is actually not unlike what Hayek is trying to identify with respect to the market mechanism. And then the last thing, just to reiterate, you know, Hayek himself was, was very sympathetic to Tocqueville, right? So as you probably know, he, he wanted to name the Mont Pelerin Society originally the, the Tocqueville Acton Society because he thought they were the great classical liberals um, of the period, but Frank Knight opposed those names for a variety of reasons. And, uh, but so Tocqueville is very much a part of what Hayek is trying to get at. And that is a project of what we mean by democratic self-governance. Now to Hayek, where people get confused about is he's always a liberal, always a liberal. They understand that, but he's not always a Democrat, but sometimes democracy to him is synonymous with liberalism and at other times, democracy is only going to be the voting procedure. And so it's not the end, it's a means. And he's going to argue that, okay, so then it's instrumentally, we maybe, you know, don't necessarily need it as much as we would do, but we never sacrifice liberalism. So Hayek would never be, in theory, in favor of illiberal non-democratic systems. That's the worst of all possible outcomes. That's his road to serfdom. So he, you know, he's, he, his rank ordering of things, you want to have constitutionally limited democracy, that's liberal. 
and uh, and that's going to be his highest thing. And so that's what his project is always working towards that kind of view of what. And nowadays, in today's world, this is what uh, Asimoglu and Robinson call the shackled Leviathan, mm-hmm. right? It's the same thing. You know, our wine gas is is talking about you. You had a wonderful podcast with 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 Barry Winegas, and he's talking about overcoming the violence trap. But what do I want to overcome the violence trap with? I grow these institutions. I overcome these violence traps. I'm going to end up by having a shackled Leviathan, right? That's why I get the credible commitment. I get the glorious revolution, you know, these kind of things. To get that, I had to overcome the problems from 1620 to 1688. Those are my threshold conditions of which I escape. But I end up by getting what? A constitutionally limited government, you know, kind of idea or what he calls later on market preserving federalism. And uh, and he's also that is another area of overlap, because, again, Vincent is all about federalism. That's what he takes polycentricism to me. And then wine gas is doing the market preserving federalism. And you see what he's doing. And in his case, remember, he wants to argue regulation has to be limited to the localist level of government. Why? Because we're going to have learning, mm-hmm. you know, competition, these overlapping, fun- fun- mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, basically, you know, functioning, overlapping, competing jurisdictions kind of idea. You mentioned there the idea of, um, well, reconstructing the liberal project is a key part of the final phase of the uh, the, what, the third phase of, of the three phases you identify in Hayek's work. If we're thinking about today's world, uh, you know, many people would argue that that project, insofar as it's, it has been um, implemented or there have been attempts to implement it, um, is actually deconstructing, that it, it's collapsing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've got declining faith in free trade. We've got protectionism on yeah. the rise. Um, we have a belief of much greater skepticism of markets than there have been at any time, perhaps in the last 30, 30 or 40 years. Is there anything in the attempt of Hayek in that 60 to 82 period where he's attempting to set out the principles of liberal justice that can help us to address the problems that we're seeing today. In the final part of the book, you try to set out yeah. some attempts to reconstruct liberalism for today. I wonder whether you could say a little bit now about sure. what that might entail. Well, so I think that the the key thing that I try to develop in the in the book is the vision of a cosmopolitan liberal worldview, um, which has the free flow of uh, labor and capital. Um, so this implies something about the borders and openness of, of, of all of that. Um, and, uh, and, and again, you know, interstate federalism kind of idea. So Hayek has a, an essay on interstate federalism. It's at the end of individualism and economic order. Uh, Lionel Robbins uh, wrote a book on international, um, uh, uh, you know, planning and, and, the, and the liberal order. Um, that was also about that. I think there's so many parallels between the conversation today that's going on and the period between 1900 and 1930. Uh, that includes nationalism and odious racial doctrines and other kinds of things like that, that we have to continually reaffirm our commitments to cosmopolitanism um, and all that entails. Um, so uh, how to take on the different challenges that we have today. Um, in the what is the European project? Uh, what is the 
project in America or, uh, you know, what's project in other parts of the world. Now, I should say that, yes, we are in a very low period of time in terms of the support for the kind of ideas that you and I uh, particularly care about. Um, the, uh, the collapse of communism in 1989 and then 1992 might have been a high point where everyone thought that we had like won by default or whatever. Um, the reality was is that that gave way quickly to frustrations with the post-communist period, but also uh, frustrations with globalization. I mean, if you go back and you look, you know, the protests against globalization are starting, you know, as the communist transitions are going on. In the midst of all this, by the way, uh, often gets forgotten that in the early 1990s, all the Nordic countries went through a radical fiscal reevaluation and they became actually more economically free than the United States. You know, like, so it's kind of a weird thing. There's a great paper by Price Fishbeck about uh, per capita spending on welfare in the Nordic states in the United States. And the impression that everyone has, of course, is that the United States doesn't spend anything on welfare state, but the Nordic countries, you know, have all this generosity. But what Fishbeck points out is that actually that's not true. Uh, you know, if you just actually look at the numbers and if you, all you have to do is look at free, the free, uh, you know, free, what is it? Uh, um, uh, free the world dot now or freetheworld.com or whatever it is and the economic freedom index at Fraser and and when you look at the rankings and look at the relative rankings since the global financial crisis on the Scandinavian countries versus the US um, and so it's been you know quite daunting if you look at the facts the reality is globalization has delivered for the first time in human history in, in 2015, less than 10% of the world's population living on less than $2 a day. This is a miracle of modernity that no one talks about, um, and we should be talking about it. Now, a large part of it is due to what happened in China and what happened in India. So, you know, we need to talk about more about why Africa is still lingering and other parts of the world have difficulties as well. But we have to see what trade and, and technology has done to improve mankind. And I think that's an important aspect of it, but not to be so self-satisfactory with that because the counterfactual is that if we had less restrictions and we had European, European regulations on agricultural products, that Africa would be richer rather than, than poorer and, and we need to work to reduce those things. And so these are the kind of policies I think that we have to focus on is, is what does it mean for us to make commitment to living in a cosmopolitan liberal world? Um, and and the discomfort that comes from, uh, you know, uh, dealing with the other. And that's why the tension that Hayek raises mm -hmm. is so important is because part of being a cosmopolitan is to overcome those moral intuitions that are all in-group and, you know, open it up for the, the out-group because that's what the demand is for this and to see the civilizing aspects of what, you know, was called the do-commerce thesis, right, mm -hmm. and, and, and whatnot. And I think that we need a full-throated defense of that kind of aspects of the do commerce thesis rather than the ruthless efficiency of capitalism, which is the way most people talk about what capitalism delivers. How about the idea of how Cadillac's is root term of that is turning a stranger into a friend? Right. And the the the, the uh, uh, you know, the characters are in the old Greek or whatever are the characters of people shaking hands. Right. Of turning a stranger into friendship. And so it's this kind of aspect of the market and of commercial society and of the liberal order and of civil society that I want to see us 
resurrect in the defense against the rise of uh, basically right-wing and left-wing authoritarian populism, which is what's coming up. And so it's very fascinating for me. I, I've been here uh, you know, since Sunday, and I've taken Uber because I've been all over the city. And when I take Uber, I take the, black, the, the, the regular black cabs, right? So when I'm in Uber, it's, I'm usually with foreign drivers. And I ask them, so what's the sense of things, you know, everything? And, you know, they don't want Brexit. They, you know, uh, and, and it's very interesting. They tell me all about the, the bad sides of things. You go into the black, the black cabs and they are like pro-Brexit, you know, like to the max, you know, and they're like, no, 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 we have to do this. So yesterday, I think I kind of, I couldn't get an Uber. So I ended up getting a black cab and I had to go. Uh, you know, past Parliament, and they have all the signs there. And I told the guy to slow down because I was taking pictures. I don't think he was very happy, you know, because I had the some that said, you know, we already voted, you know, let's go. And then the other ones, how's it working out for you? You know, let's do this. And I wanted to take all the pictures and everything, and he was kind of annoyed. But uh, it's fascinating to to think about this debate and to look at what's happened in England in London, for example, which is to me one of the most beautiful cities in the world, and it's so cosmopolitan and everything that's going on here that the last thing you would ever want to do is kill the goose that lays the golden egg in terms of the free migration of people and, and products and everything like that. But at the same time, you have this on the outskirts, right, and the other things, very strong negative attitudes towards things. And the United States is no different. I mean, you know, we just had a president violate constitutional principles and declare, you know, an act of emergency to try to build a wall. And, you know, he has people like talking about it, you know, oh, build a wall, you know, and you're like, really? Like, that's a high priority on our life. How about, you know, I want people to come into the country to work and all these things like that. But yet, you know, these issues are complicated. And so there's no, you know, what I try to argue in the, in the, in the book um, is that my normal libertarian uh, kind of uh, predispositions uh, run afoul of, of maybe engaging in a Jedi mind trick, right? There are no conflicts. There are no, right? Like I, and I want to avoid that. And instead, what I want to argue is that cosmopolitan liberalism is the solution when we, in fact, admit that we live in a world of sharp objects, that we're constantly in these cleavages, that are between groups and, and, and the disagreeableness of human beings. And what the institutions need to do is they don't eliminate the sharp objects, but what they do is they dull them so that all we get is scrapes and bruises rather than deep wounds. So right now we've allowed these sharp cleavages to become potential fatal wounds for the liberal society. And what we need to do is, is I would contend is, and this is normative, so I understand mm -hmm. this, uh, is that we need to, you know, once again, bring back the arguments that dull those edges so that we can, in fact, live better together rather than we ever could live separately, but to also live better together while we, in fact, are not the same. We, in fact, recognize differences and all these things like that. And so there are going to be these sharp edges, but can we dull them enough that we can get the benefits of the do commerce thesis and that allow our interactions with one another to teach us to be more civil and more humane than we otherwise would be in a world where we allowed those divisions to then become the sources of our warring factions. I, I, I see that, but I think, I think the concern would be, and it goes back to something that we were discussing earlier in the conversation about um, the mechanisms to deal with these divisions. So, one mechanism you might say is is democracy. Yeah. 
Um, the problem there seems to be that, you know, there are people like myself who think cosmopolitanism is wonderful. Um, if you like, embrace creative destruction, um, the creative destruction that a capitalist society inevitably involves. Yeah. Um, but there are other people who see creative destruction as the destruction of their identity. Yeah. And if people don't feel uh, that their identity is safe or mm -hmm. that they have some security for it, I'm not sure how much good it is for somebody like myself to effectively preach to them and say, oh, well, look, we need to embrace yeah. the cosmopolitan wonders of a place like London. Yeah, but that's the reason... When that's what yeah. they're rejecting. But they're that's the reason why... They want the, something else. Yeah, but that's the reason why the functioning, overlapping, competing jurisdictions matter so much because as long as the meta rule is cosmopolitan, mm -hmm. the local rules can be very parochial. Yeah. So you could live... In in a very sequestered place in yep. your own and only choose to interact as you want. So, you know, there's Dave Schmitz, uh, you know, likes to say that there's uh, a fundamental importance of being able to say no. Like, so I don't have to do that just because you as an authority tell me to do it. So I have this right to say no. And I agree with Dave on that. And he doesn't use it in the way that some other people use it to say no to everything. But I also think that one of the arguments that we need to be able to push and, and try to persuade is the right to say yes to, you know, like the London experience as opposed to, you know, um, I'm more likely in New York or something, you know, sort of the, the, the New York City experience rather than, you know, some South Jersey, you know, very sequestered little county or whatever that does that or a, a uh, but the right for that part of the people in these local communities to live as they like, they should be respected as well, provided again, that they don't, try to like impose that on anyone else. And so I think as long as you keep in the subsidiarity, the highest structure to be the most cosmopolitan, you can allow for the parochial. The problem today is that you have people like Trump, like Jeremy Corbyn, right, who are trying to actually in a weird way impose a parochialism at the highest levels and then impose it down. And that has real problems because then the cosmopolitanism can't be subservient to the parochialism, but the parochialism can be subservient to the cosmopolitanism. At least that would be the argument I would run with and try to do this. I took great inspiration when I was writing this book uh, from reading Lionel Robbins, uh, actually, during the 1930s, who was Hayek's very close research pro pro um, partner during this period of time from the economics as a coordination problem to the abuse of reason project to the liberalism project. And uh, I think that Robbins gets forgotten, you know, and it's, it's important to remember that Robbins actually was the person who penned uh, you know, the statement and aims of the Mont Pelerin Society and uh, that Robbins was a very, very strong defender of free trade, of the free mobility of people and uh, and very anti, uh, uh, you know, ethnic and um, and, uh, and and racial, uh, you know, odiousness. He was, you know, wanted to any doctrine of that he wanted to get out. He was a liberal in the true spirit of all of that. Um, and. He's an inspiring figure, I think, and his works of that period should be, along with Hayek, should be ones that we tap into. And then, you know, I think there is other modern writers, so in a more technical, public, financy way, you know, Bruno Fry's functionally overlapping competing jurisdictions is important, but I also think that Chandran Kukathas's The Liberal Archipelago is one of the 
best books written in our tradition that's inspiring and and it's very Hayekian in spirit and we should build on that and go from that. And of course, you know, we know other arguments about the decentralization thesis and polycentrism that comes from older works like Harold Berman's Law and Revolution or, uh, you know, even uh, Barzell and, and uh, Birdzell and, and Rosenberg on how the West grew rich, that it was this competition among all these different little jurisdictions that actually as a byproduct produces the foundation for the great economic growth that took place. And I think more we study and explore those kind of things, the more we can maybe learn what we need to know about today so that we can solve these puzzles because we've always had people who wanted to be protectionists. We've always had people that wanted to be nationalists, right? And so, and always wanted to protect the status quo over any kind of change. That's the natural human thing to do in some level. And so how is it that we build structures so that we can assuage that attitude, but yet not have that attitude strangle us, you know, in terms of our ability to achieve growth? Well, I think that's that's probably a good point to to finish on, Pete, because one of the things we're trying to do in this uh, centre here at King's is to emphasise that there are multiple possibilities that sort of go beyond some of the binaries that people often focus on. Yeah. So it's not just that you can either have formal rules or informal rules. It's not just that you have markets or states. Uh, there are actually these interesting spaces in between and I think what we've what you've been touching on there in the final few minutes is the idea that it's not necessarily just cosmopolitanism or just nationalism um, or localism or parochialism it's about trying to find some middle space that allows for both of them in certain ways to coexist Um, and finding um, that combination I guess is the the great challenge of the day so (laughs) thanks very much for yeah. Uh, sharing some of your thoughts with us about um, how Hayek's work relates to some of those challenges. So thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you, Mark.